The Tablet Show, episode 48, with guest Rocky Latka. Recorded live Thursday, August 23rd, 2012. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Rocky Latka about building Windows 8 tablet applications for the enterprise. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're back. It's The Tablet Show. And um, good stuff today. Hey, Mr. Campbell, what are you up to, man? I've been, you know, we've been having crazy weeks, right? We had a serious uh, website outage for a few days. Uh, 48 hours. Yeah. When an ISP goes away, you have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I've been deeply immersed in road trip planning. Yes. Well, and, and we're deeply immersed in cloud planning, too. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, everything's got to go to the cloud. But uh, yeah, this uh, this 30 city 11 week road trip is uh, is becoming a reality. Oh, it's going to be a wonderful thing. So uh, that's uh, my my life and blood right now is just trying to get all those bits and pieces in place and uh, figure out all the sponsorships and it's it's an adventure. And we wish we had more to tell you right now, but stay tuned um, and uh, we will we will get more details out on the website. If you want to just check .netrocks.com and uh, you know look for the big signage there. Hey Richard, let's flip things around today. Let's read the email first because uh, it's an imp- interesting issue that we're both talking about right here at the top of the show. You know, uh, we get a fair number of emails uh, and we appreciate them all. I really enjoy the emails, uh, the comments on Dot and Rocks and the Tablet Show, all good stuff. But you know you have a good email when even before we've read it on the show, we've all read it, we all have opinions on it, and we keep talking about it anyway. Right. So let me read this email from uh, Nelson Reese. And he was, I think he was really sending it to us as the .NET Rocks guys, but it's perfectly excellent for a tablet show because it's about .NET 4.5. And I think uh, our guest Rocky is going to contribute to this as well because it is a huge issue. Uh, Hi, .NET Rocks guys. I've been a regular listener for years. I love the passion and enthusiasm you and your guests reveal in both of your shows. Uh, Since the early announcements of Studio 11 and the .NET 4.5 beta, I've started to read about the upcoming new features and changes, so I was excited to test them on my development machine. The experience I had with Visual Studio 2008 and the betas of Studio 2010 on the same machine were great. So a few months ago, I tested the beta of Studio 11 in my development machine alongside Studio 2010. And let me just say that it isn't as nice an experience as I'd hoped since a lot of DLL glitches led me to fully reinstall my machine. With the release of .NET 4.5 and Studio 2012, I'm being a lot more careful so I don't get into the same situation. So I stumped with a problem that a lot of developers are facing, which is the in-place replacement of .NET 4.0 with 4.5. Now, Rick Strahl had a great blog post about this, and I'll include the link uh, in the show notes. And he saw that Carl Franklin made a comment where he stated he'd shown it to Scott Guthrie to get an official response from Microsoft. I don't know where that's actually gotten to. One of the most significant problems is that 4.5 has a set of bug fixes that can compromise the backward compatibility of 4.0 applications. This alone could be a bit of a nightmare since as a developer, I would have to test my applications for behavior changes before allowing my clients to install 4.5. Although how you stop them, I can't imagine. For that, I would need to maintain two developer machines. Of course, one could be a virtual machine. Uh, In a web hosting company, the problem can be even worse since it can be impossible to ask customers to test and update all the web applications of 4.5. So in order to offer new 4.5 features, they need to use separate servers, some of 4.0 and some of 4.5. The problem became terrifying when Microsoft announced that 4.5 won't be available for XP or Windows 2003, which is about a quarter of the users according to the current uh, usage share of operating systems. Neither is a service pack with only the bug fixes. That means that developers who need to target Windows XP machines will have to make hard choices, either add extra testing steps to XP machines or machines with only .NET 4.0, not to mention third-party components can become unusable if the behavior differs from 4.0 to 4.5, or ignore 4.5 bug fixes and hope they're related to features not used in your applications they won't change behavior, or completely ignore Studio 2012 and .NET 4.5 for the next couple of years unless you're creating web apps. 
Yeah. And that's from Nelson Reese in uh, Portugal. And uh, he included a few other links about this conversation, which clearly is ongoing in a lot of different areas. I mean, it, the, the, what I appreciate about what Nelson brings to this table, we've talked about the 4045 in place uh, update before, and it, mm-hmm. it has some potential problems. Uh, but the bigger one is now that XP has been excluded. That, I think, is the big whammy. Is If you're going to exclude XP, then you're basically forcing me to stay on 4.0 if I've got XP users. Yeah. And, um, you know, to their credit, Microsoft is offering ridiculously low prices on upgrades these days. I'm not sure about the upgrade from XP to Vista, which I think is still required in order to get you, uh, you know, to get you into the Vista Windows 7 class of operating systems. But I'm not sure about that. Nelson, we're going to talk about this for a while yet, including with Rocky, because it's just not a simple issue. But I wanted you to know we're sending you a tablet show mug. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, you can write us a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com or send us an email at donnerrocks at franklins.net. All right. And now it's time for Better Know Framework. You know, Richard, as I listen to this, I, I think you need some music for reading a mail message. <laughs> really? <laughs> Um, I don't know. So, yeah, this is an interesting issue. I went and looked and trying to get an answer because, you know, I didn't get anything really back from Scott Guthrie or maybe he posted something and didn't let me know. But I did find a post from Scott Hanselman, which you can look at at tinyurl.com slash .net 4.5 versioning. And this is a blog post from April of this year. And he does a good job of explaining what Rick Strahl explains, and he even boils down the essence of Rick's blog post, which was really the first that brought this to my attention. And he shows you how the system can tell the difference between .NET 4 and .NET 5 installed on the uh, machine. Actually, if you look in your .NET Framework directory, you know, under Windows, Microsoft, .NET Framework, you'll have a .NET 4.0 subdirectory and a .NET 4.5 subdirectory. So there's one crude way to tell that 4.5 is installed. But also binding, you know, we the CLR does know the difference between the two. And he shows you how to prove it. So, uh, and he comes away with this. So while .NET 4.0 and .NET 4.5 don't live side by side on your system at runtime, Visual Studio knows all about the different versions of .NET and the compiler will reference different versions when you build. And so he shows you uh, the app config and how automatically it sets the app config that contains this uh, a binding directly to version 4.5. So he, he does go through this issue a little bit and I'm a little less afraid now. And this is a really cool trick that Scott does in this post. He creates a boolean is .NET 4.5 or newer. <laughs> and he returns uh, a get type of system reflection reflection context with a default of false, uh, not equal to null. So because reflection context exists from .NET 4.5 onwards, it's going to return a Boolean if you're in .NET 4.5 or newer. And it's going to return an object if you're in 4.5. So I thought that was a clever little test that you can do right in your code. And he also says, this is not what we'd recommend, but, you know, if you want a crude way to do it, there you go. Um... Rocky, I guess you need no introduction because you're Rocky Lotka. Everybody knows who you are, Lotka.net, author, speaker, uh, pontificator, and uh, a contributor to the .NET community is an understatement. What do you think about this issue? Well, hi. I think an interesting issue. It's not really new um, in that we've gone through this with .NET 3 and .NET 3.5. Right. Um, because those rested on top of .NET 2 and applied service packs to .NET 2. So at, at least at some level, we've all been through this over the past six or seven years. Uh, but probably the primary difference here is that we still have people running uh, .NET 4 mandatorily on, on XP, on uh, older servers, and, and also currently on Azure. Mm. And so that does... Uh, certainly pose some interesting challenges. I think that for most people, this probably isn't going to be the big issue that it might seem. I, I do think that um, it does add a testing burden 
in that you have to test to see if you're affected by some of the bug fixes or or uh, other changes. But in my case, for example, we were able to take well, we created um, a version of uh, CSLA for .NET 4.5, and then later decided that we would still want to support .NET 4 um, because of Azure and and some of these other platforms. And it turned out to be, in our case, a non-issue. We were able to to retarget the same code and compile it to .NET 4. Uh, We did have to use the async targeting pack that you can get through NuGet uh, because the new version of CSLA is, of course, using all the cool async and await keywords. So I guess where I'm going with this is I I can see where it's an issue if you're affected by um, one of the bug fixes, but I suspect that most of us are going to be unaffected. Yeah. Yeah, for me, the thing that make, that really frustrates me is this the XP situation. I, you know, it's it feels like a kind of arbitrary decision that they're not going to support XP with four point five. Uh, I mean, admittedly, XP is an eleven year old operating system, but the fact that you're gonna, you know, they've got to really weigh this. Do you really want us not to use your new uh, tools because we're still supporting XP based apps? Yeah, but the the reality is that XP's got a fairly limited lifespan. I, I do agree that there's a short-term impact here, but um, most organizations have strategic plans in place at this point to um, ensure that they're not using XP once it goes off support. Right, which is in, in two years. and or Or a little less, right? And so that's, that's not very far out. And so, and, and conversely, I think that um, as much as Microsoft and, and some of us that really enjoy Windows 8 are, are hoping that things like Windows 8 roll out rapidly, you know, the way corporate and, and larger organizations, governmental or whatever, work, they're not going to be rolling out Windows 8 in any big way for, uh, you know, some time, probably. Yeah. There's more than one company I've talked to that's, that really they're going to skip eight and wait for nine, which there seems to be some indication that nine's not far behind, that, you know, 18 months from now we're going to have a Windows 9, and, and that's going to be the one that, that enterprises are going to be interested in. Well, I wonder if Microsoft, uh, you know, they haven't said anything officially like this, yeah. but it, it certainly seems like moving into a more mobile, tablet-based, fluid world that you could envision Windows being updated on a cadence more comparable to what Microsoft has been doing with the phone. So maybe one minor and one major update every year. Yeah. And um, so then the concept of of a quote-unquote Windows 9, um, you you almost wonder if that'll ever even happen. Well, I suppose it will, but you, you can see where we could go two or three years with some pretty substantial updates to Windows 8. Um, that, that in the past might have been an R2 release or, or you know, whatever, um, but they just become uh, upgrades to an existing uh, platform. Well, I think that, you know, the uh, XP Vista Win 7 sequence is the anomaly that they went five years between XP and Vista was crazy because, I mean, look at the chain. Windows 98, Windows 98 SE, XP was 2001, right? And it, you know, that cadence was much tighter with 18 months, two years. That was the norm for a while. And then we have this one crazy stretch to an operating system, which clearly nobody liked, you know, or, you know, barely tolerated and then quickly followed by another one. I, I, I feel more like we're just the operating system teams getting back on track. They're shaking off the Vista debacle. Seven's a great OS, and people are really liking it. Now they've made a radical shift, and I wouldn't surprise me at all if they stayed on an 18-month cadence after that. So I I have a question here for maybe both of you, because I haven't been following this as much as you guys have, I'm sure. But if you go to tinyurl.com slash win8upgradepath, this is uh, Brandon LeBlanc's uh, post from Blogging Windows, the Windows blog. Um, and, and this is in where they announced the upgrade to Windows 8 Pro for $39.99. And it says starting, and this is from July 2nd, starting at general availability, if your PC is running Windows XP, 
Windows Vista or Windows 7, you will qualify to download and upgrade to Windows 8 Pro for just $39.99 in 131 markets. And going to back to uh, developer preview, I think it was, I saw somewhere, and I can't corroborate this, and maybe you can, that you can install a clean version of Windows 8 over a version of Windows XP. In other words, it won't grow, upgrade your apps, but it will keep your accounts and settings. Is, is that what you guys have heard? The, uh, the, the path for upgrading from XP is still somewhat complex. It's better than it was when they first said with Vista, you know, that it was just not going to be any easy upgrade. They've done a lot. But uh, you're right. I mean, they, none of the apps go across. They're good at protecting my documents. You know, there's some tools there. And the accounts, I think, would be the biggest thing. I mean, if your your account and password still works, that's it, that's at least something. And the price, of course, of the upgrade is is compelling. They definitely want people off of XP. Well, there have been various um, things published over the last year or so about the uh, number of, of viruses or malware that target different different operating systems and because xp has been around for so long um, it's the most widely targeted os for for malware and even with all of microsoft's service packs over time it's still comparatively vulnerable when you start looking at windows 7 or windows 8 and so i think there's you know certainly it's in microsoft's interest to um encourage people to get off from XP and onto a more secure operating system um, or modern, whatever term you want to use. Yeah. I mean, XP was the original, you know, XP SP2 was the original secured operating system, but uh, it's now behind the times a long way. But, you know, there's other things that, that tie into this, I think, that are uh, maybe less obvious, but my family and my community have had some relationships with uh, a city in the center of China. And so we do exchange programs with students coming here and, and our students going there. And the last time uh, some of the Chinese students came over here, a lot of the hosting families wanted to set up computers with the Chinese language uh, character sets so that their uh, guests could send emails back home. And on Windows 7 and Windows 8 and things like iPads, that's trivial. It's a complete non-issue. Right. On XP, it's really quite painful. And what I thought was interesting, and, and, and my observation here is this, that most of the hosting parents were not computer geeks, right? Yeah. Uh, and so their perception is that, and most of them had iPads and Windows, but mostly Windows XP. So their perception is that Windows is horrible and that iPads are awesome. Right. And, of course, that's not a fair comparison. No, you're comparing... comparing a 10-year-old <laughs> operating system. Right. Um, so there, too, Microsoft has a, a strong interest in getting people to use the things they've created over the past decade. Yeah, because people are comparing them straight across, which is you know, an interesting problem. All right, Rocky. I mean, I appreciate your insights on dealing with these in-place upgrades and the and the operating systems, but I really got to hear what you've been doing with Windows 8 lately because uh, the its shipping date is imminent. You know, the product is well underway. Uh, have you got some client apps out there that are Windows 8? Well, we've been having a lot of fun, I, I would say, on two different fronts. Um, from a Magenic perspective, we've been doing, I, I think we've now finished eight uh, Windows 8 applications on, on WinRT, mm -hmm. and we've got several others in, in progress and, and more on the horizon. Uh, a lot of these are relatively small. You know, they're companies that are, are getting their feet wet to, to see what it's like or what the experience is. Um, but it, it's pretty exciting to see how much um, interest there is in Windows 8 and, and the new platform and the idea that People are going to be able to build, uh, you know, either an HTML5 or, or more likely a .NET application mm -hmm. that can run uh, on tablets as well as desktops. And is it the tablet angle that's particularly interesting? Is that what the the businesses are looking for? Is how do I use a tablet? Well, it really is. I mean, I think that people already have a good story for 
traditional Windows development using WPF or other technologies. Mm-hmm. But those don't translate particularly well to tablets. And I think there's two angles to the whole tablet thing. One is some companies look in, at this as, and say, boy, you know, I'm already creating uh, some sort of site or, or app for phones and for iPads. And the expectation is that Microsoft will sell a whole bunch of Windows 8 devices, so they want to make sure they're there. Right. It's kind of an external-facing deal. But then there's also a fair number of organizations that have um, tried to keep a lid on the on the iPad uh, explosion inside their company because it's expensive to think about reworking all your business apps to you know that are mostly targeting Windows. Sure. Um, either rewrite them for the web to be cross-platform and live with the costs and, and limitations that that brings, or to write Objective C versions of all of your apps, you know, in addition to your .NET ones, which is yeah, crazy expensive. But 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 you know, we we have customers that are doing those things too. You know, people are choosing to accept that expense, but there are a fair number of organizations that have been basically, I don't know, you maybe say holding out or or being cautious, mm-hmm. right, waiting for the chaos to settle. And I think for a lot of those organizations, Windows 8 looks like maybe a potential beacon of hope <laughs> in that they can get their um, end-users' tablets, but they don't have to write the app again or they don't have to switch from um, you know, a smart client model to a web model. Because it does feel like they're still going to have to write the app again because they have to write it in WinRT. Well, that's true, but... They don't necessarily, and and that's why we're seeing, I think, so much of this um, kind of sticking their toe in the water to see if it's warm or cold, is just how much work is it to rewrite your app um, into WinRT? Because there's this misconception that I keep running into that that .NET doesn't work on WinRT. Yeah, right. It's just they didn't give it enough love. But but the reality is that it it's great. Right, you know the the, the .dot net um, implementation on WinRT is uh, extremely comparable to what existed on Silverlight, and, and in fact, it's more robust than Silverlight yeah. Five. Hmm. Um, and the, so, the biggest impact that you encounter is, in my experience thus far, is less on the um, the .dot net coding part, and it's more on the the XAML is not the same. So yeah. you're, if you're a WPF or Silverlight XAML person, you will have to rework your presentation layer. And of course, if you're Windows Forms, obviously you're going to have to switch to XAML. Yeah. Mm. But from a coding perspective, if you've done a good job architecturally of keeping your, your business logic out of your UI, um, you know, and avoiding writing all of your code in, in lost focus events and, you know, things that we've known have been bad for many, many years. Um, it's really not that bad. It's not. I th- I think the the bigger problem is, uh, you you have less of a problem if you're writing for Windows 8, and then taking that and trying to make Silverlight or WPF versions of those applications. So long as you have solutions for those elements that are new in Windows 8, in particular to Windows 8, but if you have existing Silverlight stuff. You're, you're, that is the closest to Windows 8, Windows runtime, I think, that it, just from the research that I've done, that's the closest platform to Windows runtime. If you're coming from WPF, yeah, you have, you have quite a bit of work ahead of you. On, on the UI side. On the yep. UI side. Yeah, I agree entirely. The, all the other piece, of course, is that if you wrote your, a WPF app could be a two-tier app, with a lot of data access code scattered throughout the app. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you know, it depends on how good you are with keeping architectural discipline, but that's pretty common. And then you're in trouble also because the WinRT, like Silverlight, pretty much requires that you're going to have an app server and uh, that you talk to, and your data access code will run on an application server, not directly inside of your client. Right. 
So it really depends on where you're coming from, right? I mean, if you if you if you've followed modern development practices and you're using O data for your data access and you've encapsulated off your presentation and so forth, it sounds like an awful lot of your code is just going to migrate straight across, and then you just got to rework. What does the touch UI look like? What does the Win8 UI guideline style require? That kind of thing is all the only thing you have to address. Yes, that's right. But if you've been porting a VB6 OCX app from machine to machine, and now you want it to run on Win8. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at that point we're, we're hitting a break point that, in my mind, is comparable to the introduction of uh, essentially Windows 95. Right. The 16-bit to 32-bit jump, those kinds of things. Yeah, right. I mean, it, this is a major platform shift. Mm-hmm. And so if you've been kind of following, you know, 20 or, or 17, 15-year-old programming techniques and haven't switched to be what most of us would consider more modern, um, you're probably going to be forced to become a little more modern at this point. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's not... You know, the other thing that happened in the mid-90s was uh, a lot of us, including myself, were forced to switch switch from uh, pessimistic locking on our databases to optimistic. Right. Um, all the data access technologies uh, in the early 90s offered pessimistic locking schemes, and they, they pretty much quit by the time you get to the mid-90s. And for all, for me and, and many, many other people, that was a pretty major shock because the way you think about interacting with data fundamentally changes. And I, I think this is pretty comparable to that. And then what we're talking about here is pessimistic means you, you need to assume there will be a collision. And, you know, two people try to write the same record at the same time. And optimistic means, no, there probably won't be. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we always used to, to just grab a record in a table and, and lock it and hold it until you were done using it. Right. And that has its own set of problems, but it's it's a programming or, or architectural technique that if you buy into it, you kind of just make that assumption. And, and it fundamentally alters the way you think about code um, if you give up that idea of locking a row. And a lot of people these days probably don't even know we used to do that. <laughs> Right, um, and the same thing here. I think if you're if you assume that you're writing a one or two tier app and um, that your app can do anything to the client, you know, can, from reformatting the hard drive to just making uh, database calls, and all of a sudden we go into um, a world where the client part of your app runs in a sandbox that really only allows you to do what many people would consider appropriate client-side things, mm-hmm. like interact with the user. Um, now, some of you, you know, it, it's kind of a slap in the face if you've assumed full control of, of your client environment. This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the Tablet Show. Let's jump over to an issue that you've been having uh, lately, which is sideloading on Windows 8. This is an, an issue where uh, you have to install Metro apps through the, the App Store. Where does that leave line of business applications that we need to deploy as Metro applications in the enterprise? Is he allowed to say that? Metro? I don't think so. Yeah, the word's banned, man. Aren't there, aren't there going to be, like, lawyers breaking down your door? Yeah. Apparently German lawyers. 
<laughs> Apparently, Metro is a grocery store chain in Germany. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are we supposed to call it now? Windows 8 UI apps? Yeah. Or Windows Store apps? Or... Windows Store apps. There you go. Oh, my wow, God. Wow, because that's such a compelling name. <laughs> it's kind of a mess, isn't well, it? Let's call them t- Windows Tile apps. That's fine. Because there's yeah, a visual for you. I'm sticking with Win- WinRT apps because that's the. Uh, all right. It describes the platform. Better. Apps formerly known as Metro? <laughs> yeah. I think they should just have a symbol. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So about the issue of sideloading, what, what, what do we do about this? Well, for me, this is a big deal because the majority of what Magenic does is builds line of business apps for our customers. And we, although we do some apps that get put onto uh, um you know, phones or whatever for um, end user through a store. Most of what we do is building apps that are used by either employees or partners or, you know, people inside the company. And Windows historically has been primarily, I would say, focused on that market, right? On, on building and deploying business apps. And so when you start looking at things like the Wikipedia article that describes the different versions of Windows 8 or, or editions, I guess, because there are four, right? There's there's Windows RT, which is Windows 8 for ARM devices. Right. And then there's Windows 8, which is pretty comparable to what was Windows 7 Home. And then there's Windows 8 Pro, which is pretty comparable to Windows 7 Pro or Ultimate, I suppose. And then there's uh, Windows 8 Enterprise, which is focused on enterprises and domain environment. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Wikipedia page, and, and I've seen some other things on different sites as well, it seems to indicate that the only places that you can do what's called sideloading, which is to say that you want to deploy your business app without going through Microsoft's store, um, the only place that you can sideload is on Windows RT, so that's ARM devices, and Windows Enterprise. And you you think about that, that's on its face, that's an absurd assumption because mm-hmm. what are what are most people going to buy when they go out to a store or or online and, and buy a computer? Right. They're gonna get either Windows 8 or Windows 8 Pro. Right. And so if we were to run with this assumption, then we would be saying that Microsoft, for who knows why, decided that um, most users can't run business apps on their computers. You know, but with a $199 Surface, though, isn't that, aren't they going to sell more than all of the PCs in the world, right? Aren't you leaving out that special factor? <laughs> I'm hopeful that we're all going to run around with Surfaces, sure, but I'm, I'm unconvinced that people are going to... I mean, one, one of the big values of Windows 8 is that it still runs all your Windows 7 stuff. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a tablet and it's a PC replacement. And so, no, I honestly think most people are going to go out and for at least for the next year or two, they're still going to go buy laptops and Ultrabooks and maybe some desktops, and they're all going to run Windows 8. And we can still load our regular old apps to run on the desktop mode of Windows 8. Well, but, but here's, the, here's the thing, right? So all everything I've said to this point is all hypothetical. The reality is this, and I, I've spent a bunch of time talking to people inside of Microsoft and, and uh, doing some other research, and, and so here's the real story, and that is that there is absolutely a mechanism to sideload business applications on all four editions of Windows 8. Ah, okay. Right. This, this is the key message that everybody needs to get, is that um, Windows RT has its own scheme where Microsoft appears to have put more energy into making it a uh, a user-friendly experience because mm-hmm. they've got a, a way to browse for apps and do sideloading um, with a, a pre-built Microsoft UI. For Windows 8, Windows 8 Pro, and Windows 8 Enterprise, they've left it up to your um, your organization, your IT group, or your developer group to um, identify how you're going to put the apps um, how, you know, how your end user is going to find the apps, but there's absolutely a way, either through domain policy or by installing a certificate um, on the client machine so that the client machine trusts your IT group mm-hmm. where you can install a line of business apps. Well, that's interesting. 
So what you won't be able to do is go out to random websites and grab a, an MSI and install um, uh, what you hope is not a virus. Right, right. It, it, that's not going to be allowed. But um, your corporate IT, for example, can give you a certificate that you know, basically you double-click a link, it installs a certificate on your um, Windows 8 machine. And from that point forward, um, they might give you a, a script or a, or a link that you click that downloads and installs an AppX file from your that's signed by your corporate certificate. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I keep have to remind myself that I'm not Microsoft's customer in this scenario, that the average mortal, the one who gets into trouble installing apps on machines... Uh, this sort of set of restrictions makes perfect sense. They'll just go to the app store and get what they need. They, you know, life's going to be pretty good for them. They're safe. I'm personally extremely excited. It's a very specific story. My oldest son, who's not a programmer, but he's reasonably tech savvy, as you might imagine, mm-hmm. wanted to, and, and he's also kind of an artist, so he wanted to do some um paint worker or drawing on his computer. So he went and I said, oh, well, you should go get paint.net because it's a nice program. So he went out to, uh, I think, Google or Bing or whatever and and searched for paint.net. The first item comes up. It looks like an official web page. So he clicks on it, clicks install, and bam, he's full of viruses. Right. Wow. Because it turns out that that the first link that you get for paint.net isn't the real one. It's like number three. And, um, but how would he know, right? The, the, the bad guys did a great job. They made their website look official. They made the installer look official. And so you don't know that you're done until the installer is done and your computer's full of stuff, right? And so how is a normal user supposed to defend against that? Yeah. That, that's horrific. And that's why for me, this idea of the only WinRT apps you're going to get are from the Microsoft store, which went through a vetting process or from your IT group, who presumably did a vetting process. Well, an ultimate is responsible for cleaning up the machine if they make a mess of it anyway. Yeah, that's right. So I, I'm quite excited. The quicker we can get um, everybody's, you know, primarily using WinRT and the, you know, away from Win32 and, and Virus Land, the better. Oh, for sure. So. Talking about apps in the enterprise that are tablet apps, what do they look like? They, I mean, does it make sense to try and build a line of business app for a tablet? Well, I think we have to step back and consider that, that WinRT runs on the tablet. Right. It runs on Ultrabooks. It runs on laptops. It runs on desktops. And so the, I think the question here is not about the tablet as much as does it make sense to run or to create business apps on WinRT? Mm-hmm. And I think the clear answer there is yes, for two reasons. One, in general, it appears Microsoft's putting all their money into it. This is the future of Windows. Right. right? Um, but two, it gives you this more secure, safe environment like we were just talking about. I mean, it's a desirable target platform. Mm-hmm. So then the second question is... Um, can you create line of business apps that are um, that don't require a keyboard and mouse? Yeah, I guess that's a great question. Right. And or which is, I mean, I'm reframing your question. Mm-hmm. You know, can, can we do it for tablets? But really, the question is keyboard, mouse versus touch. Can we do it for touch? Because I think, what, at least what I hope we're going to see are some ultrabooks and, and laptops that have touch screens mm-hmm. um, in addition to tablets. And so the, the it's still the same question. And from what we've done so far um, in building some of the proof-of-concept apps and other apps, the, the answer is absolutely yes. Okay. It re- but it does require your um, user experience designer and probably your developers to kind of up their game a little bit because you need to uh, – well, well, for example, if you run uh, Outlook 2013, the, the, the beta, public beta – if you run that on a tablet, Microsoft did a very clever thing in that when you click on a menu with a mouse, they give you a normal menu. If you tap on a menu with your finger, they they know that you did a touch gesture to open the menu, and the menu renders itself with wider spacing. Oh, okay. Mm. Interesting. How does it know? Well, that's part of the WinRT API. You can actually 
you can know whether it was a click or a tap. They're, they're different events. And so you can get the same, give the user what feels intuitively like a comparable experience, but when you open your, um, your pop-up menu for touch, you can make it touch-friendly, and when you open it with a mouse, you can make it more compact and mouse-friendly. And so that's what I mean by upping the game. It's, yeah. it's the kind of thing where, um, as a developer and as a uh, user experience designer, you have to give thought to the fact that your application um, might be used by somebody with a mouse or touch. Mm-hmm. A lot of the early um, preview apps that were on, you know, during the developer preview and, and release preview for Windows 8 um, were built for touch first. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I'm going to pick on Discourse. It's, it's an RSS aggregator that I really like a lot. And its first couple of iterations were were really nice to use from touch, but it was almost impossible to use them uh, with a keyboard and mouse. And much to the credit of uh, the developer, uh, he's put a lot of work into getting what I believe is really nice parity. So it feels very natural to use it with touch, but it also honors the uh, mouse wheel if you're using a mouse and, and uh, some keyboard shortcuts if you're using a keyboard. Rocky, do you, do you know... Any way to programmatically um, zoom and use gestures? Like if I wanted to simulate uh, a pinch or a zoom or a move or a swipe or something like that, do you know any way to programmatically do that on RT? Um, Well, it's not entirely clear that you would have to do that in that the built-in WinRT controls, for the most part, already support those gestures. I'm talking about the OS, like the whole OS. If I'm at the main, you know, tile window there and I want to move to the right, I have to actually physically swipe it. But if there's a way that I wanted to, let's, you know, let's say I'm using a Connect and I want to, you know, m- take my Connect gestures and apply them to the whole operating system. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I haven't had any luck finding the answer either. Yeah, that I don't know. It's not clear that your application, uh, well, in fact, I think I'll put it a different way. I think it's pretty clear that your app um, running in WinRT can't affect other apps. Right, and that makes sense for the sandbox point of view. Yep. See, you, know, uh, you can't write an app in WinRT that affects the main start page because that's a different app. And that's that's one of the things about uh, .NET that is a leftover from Win32. I mean, you have access to system-level things. And so that in right, and of right. itself creates a problem for any kind of sandboxed application. Well, it, it does make for great virus opportunity. Ah, <laughs> yeah, <it does>. <laughs> <laughs> So, Rocky, are you saying that the mouse experience in Win8 in the new UI, the UI formerly known as Metro, is bearable like is it it's it's not just a second class citizen yeah it's very i i wouldn't use the word bearable it's just fine it's normal um normal i I think that well at the operating system level right every application has to implement support for the mouse and touch and different applications have done a better or worse job of that and and that i think is something that we all have to as we start building WinRT apps, you just have to take the time to do that. Yeah. Are you feeling like you're just not going to build apps for the classic desktop anymore? You can, you can make it all work in the new UI? Well, it's pretty early days to say something like that. Um, I mean, the reality is that as a consulting company, we're going to be building applications on the platforms that our customers use. And for many years, people are going to continue to use Windows 7 and, uh, you know, Server 2008 and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's not like tomorrow we're going to, or on October, you know, November 1st, we're going to be able to all switch to Windows 8. Sure. As cool, you know, <laughs> as cool as that might be. It's not true. I'm sure I read a blog post of yours not that long ago. You were working in WinForms for a customer. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there's a lot of people still using WinForms. A lot of people. And yeah, that's not going to change anytime soon. Sure. So, so no, I, I fully expect that we'll continue to build Windows Forms, WPF, you know, Silverlight apps for a long time. 
But um, I do think that for a lot of business applications where people um, have managers or executives that are saying, I want it to run on my tablet, mm. um, you know, the answer very easily could be, well, that's great. Let's build it in, in WinRT and we can have at least some reasonable amount of common code uh-huh. between what's running on our Windows 7 desktops that most people have and also running on our uh, WinRT tablets that our, our managers or executives are using. Sure. I have had the awesome experience of installing Windows 8 on both my big studio machine, uh, the desktop machine, the studio with three monitors and the Asus Triple E tablet. And um, I'm, I've had no problem with the mouse. I have not had the urge to reach up and touch the 30-inch monitor to swipe left. Because <laughs> it's not going to work if you do. Yeah, I, I just got used to touching, to, to pressing the Windows key, which really is your friend, I think. Um, you know, Windows key and start typing in your anywhere. You know, if I want to run a command prompt, Windows key CM, pretty much, and there it is right there. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion on the web really over the last couple of weeks about, you know, as people, um, and, and I think maybe a lot of them are journalists, but they, other people too that are installing Windows 8, playing with it for a day or two and, and making up their mind as to whether they think it's good or bad. Right. Yeah. And, you know, with the change of this magnitude, you know, the first time I picked up an iPad, I thought it was horrible. Mm. And I, I know that is get a bunch of hate mail from Apple fanboys, but but I you know it was I did not find it to be intuitive, and it took me quite a while before I uh, was able to talk to people and learn all of the hidden little tricks how you navigate around in an iPad. Well, and this is the thing that's starting to really annoy me is none of this stuff's intuitive. It never has been. It's all no. learned. It's a question of how consistent is the paradigm so that once you learn that the, the 15% you need to learn, the rest just works. But you've right. got to learn it. And and I think until somebody's used Windows 8 for at least a week or better yet two, mm-hmm. used it full time, mm-hmm. they're not, they can't give you a credible opinion. Sure. But if you've used it for two weeks full time and you still think that it's not good, um, which, which was not my experience, by the way. I used it, well, I've been running it full time on my main machines now for some months. Um, but if you use it for a couple of weeks and you still don't like it, okay, then I would agree that you've got a, at least an informed opinion. Sure. Hey, uh, Carl, just out of curiosity, with the multi-screen machine, is everything still full screen? How can you split stuff up? Well, what's really cool about that is when you run uh, the the tile screen, I almost said it. <laughs> <laughs> you press the Windows key and the tile screen comes up. It's only on the left monitor. Your desktop and your applications that are running on monitor on the right-hand monitor are still visible, and okay. they're still running. And if I click on any one of those, I'm back in desktop mode on the left monitor, too. Nice. But if I have something that I want to keep a watch over, I just drag it to the second monitor, and uh, it continues to run in desktop mode and continues to work, even if I'm in tile mode in the tile screen on uh, on, on the left. So I like that. And I also like the fact that, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting warmed up to the fact that there are hot spots in the corners and what they do, that you just move the mouse to the lower right-hand corner right. if you want the, the charms to come over. You know, I'm getting used to that. I, I would rather have a key on the keyboard, frankly, because I'm sitting at the desktop. The keyboard is my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so here, too, we come back to learning. Most of us have learned a whole bunch of, uh, well, I don't know, a handful anyway of hotkeys that we always use in Windows Seven. Yeah, Windows Eight has a comparable set of four or five hotkeys, such as Windows C that brings up the charms, and Windows Q that brings up the search. It's Q for query, I assume. Cute. Mm-hmm. And um, Windows Page Up and Windows Page Down that moves the WinRT display between your different monitors. Look at that. And there are some other ones too. There's actually a, a, a blog. Uh, entry out there on one of the Microsoft sites that gives you a summary of all the Windows hotkeys. But those are the ones I use, are Windows Q, Windows C, and Windows Page Up and Page Down. Well, that's great. It does feel like it's the mouse that's really threatened by Windows 8. The yeah. keyboard has a good role. Yeah. And the key, let's face it, the key, anybody who's doing serious work on the PC, you know, with 
with, well, I don't know with what, but just serious work. The keyboard is the fastest way to move around. Yeah. It really is. Slick Run has been my friend since <laughs> XP. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Well, and I'm also wondering, you know, maybe the synthesis of keyboard and gesture will ultimately be the solution. Maybe. Give me a, give me a little connect on those big screens and integrate it with Win8. Yeah. And I'm still looking for it. One of the reasons that I asked you that question about controlling Windows with, uh, you know, overarching gestures was because I'd like to have a tablet next to my keyboard on the mm-hmm. other side of my mouse or, or whatever that I could use to do those touch gestures and have it translate to my big screen, you know. So, but that means controlling, that means capturing a pinch you know, on the on the tablet and then transferring or transmitting that pinch to to my other machine and programmatically right. pinching. I wonder though, and I, I haven't tried this, but you know, something like a Wacom tablet. Um certainly my Dell laptop has a touchpad mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I run Windows eight on that and I turned on the multi touch gestures for the touchpad. So I can do pinch and uh scrolling up, scrolling sideways, um, all those gestures on my touchpad, and they work, they, they do what you would think in terms of having an effect on what's on the screen. Yeah, that that would be great. And a, maybe a larger, a keyboard with a larger touchpad. Yeah, and that's why I'm thinking, and I don't know, but um, you know, a Wacom tablet is a pretty large touchpad, yeah. so it might do that. Yeah, good, good advice. Well, Rocky, is there anything else that we missed that you want to, that's burning on your mind that you want to talk about? Well, the only other thing that I've been spending a lot of time on, uh, as you can probably imagine, is uh, getting CSLA.net working on WinRT, and, and uh, that's coming along, and my expectation is that we'll have uh, a version available for, by the time that Windows 8 hits general availability, we'll have... Uh, CSLA running on .NET 4.5 and, and WinRT. Now, what was the big hurdle that uh, that really took the most time? I would, there, there were two. One is the there's a bunch of changes to reflection in uh, WinRT. And so if you have code that uses reflection quite a bit, and most frameworks do, that was a fair amount of work. And the other big area that I'm currently working on is making sure that async and await uh, all the new asynchronous stuff that's in .NET 4.5, uh, make sure that that works the way you would expect it to. Mm. And on the surface, it looks so easy. Um, mm-hmm. But the deeper you dig, the the further down the hole turns out to be. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it's uh, And especially, again, if you're building a framework, it's, it's the kind of thing that you, you start at the surface, like I did, and say, oh, well, I want to make my public API support or basically expose asynchronous methods. And then the next thing you know, well, I did that, but to make it really work nice, I need to go the next level down inside my framework. And and it's a repeating thing. So by the time you're done, you know, you, in my case, rework the WCF proxies. So everything from the top level, um, I want a business, so I want a customer edit object all the way through the chain um, to the WCF call and then the server-side code, you want all those to have uh, um, the ability to be async. Let's give you an opportunity just for a plug here. Tell us what your CSLA.NET framework does that isn't in the the .NET framework. Well, the way that I think about it is really two different things. One is when you go to build an application with .NET, Microsoft and, and others have given us great tools to talk to databases and get data into and out of databases. And they've given us great tools for designing and building uh, a user experience. But what never seems to come into being is a great experience for creating your business logic. Right. You end up, you end up just writing that in classes or function libraries, and there's no, not, not necessarily any consistency in how that's done. And so CSLA provides a home for business logic. That's its central purpose in existence. Um, and then a, a side effect of, of doing that is that 
it imposes a, a layered infrastructure architecture so that your business logic is separate from your presentation and it's separate from your data access. And that gets you to the other big benefit, which is that if you use CSLA to build your business logic, uh, let's say on a WPF application, that same business logic, you can just recompile it into WinRT because CSLA does a lot of things to shelter you from platform changes between .NET, Windows Phone, Silverlight, or WinRT. Ah, great. And is it a is it a sort of an MVVM type of architecture? Not necessarily. It, it it really CSLA focuses on creating the business layer, which is another way of saying that it uh, focuses on creating the model. Right. So MVVM has a model, but MVC has a model, and MVP has a model. Mm-hmm. And so any of those uh, UI architectures, because those really are all UI patterns. Right. They all assume you've got a model, and CSLA helps you create a model that works great behind MVC, MVP, or MVVM. Right. So you're you're in the model area now. You do you have uh, things for binding and undo and all sorts of great features there, and that that's what I really think of as the sort of killer set of model features. And just give right. us a list of those real quick. Well, at a high level. The, the kind of technical features are, are support for data binding. So when you create a business object using CSLA, it can bind to any of the Microsoft UI technologies. So web forms, MVC, WPF, WinRT, um, interchangeably. So it just it knows how to bind to all of those and do the right thing. Then it provides a home for business logic because CSLA gives you a uh, rules engine for validation for business rules and for authorization rules. And all of those rules get implemented in your business layer, but they get exposed through standard data binding interfaces. So again, all of the the UI technologies um, do the right thing when they're talking to your the rules that are implemented in your mm-hmm. business layer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the third big thing is that CSLA abstracts the concept of your of talking to an application server. So when you ask CSLA for um, an invoice object, you don't your your UI code says, "Hey, I need an invoice object because I need to display it to the user," but you don't know if that resulted in a call to an application server or maybe through a web server to an application server. These are all configuration choices that don't affect your code. Right. And so the the short way to put it is that if you create the application without changing your code, you can just configure it to run one tier, two tier, three tier, or four tier, depending on how you choose to deploy it. Yeah, that's great. And I think this is important because there's this thing called the curse of success where you, um, you know, somebody comes and says, hey, I need you to create this quick app. It's going to be used for six months, five users. It's a stopgap thing. You know, don't put a lot of energy into it. And so you, you, know, you, you don't, well, traditionally. <laughs> you just whip up whatever your favorite tool is and you create this little app using no good practices. Um, and you get it out very fast. And, and the users are happy. And then you go away. You, you forget about it. And maybe a year later, you know, 18 months later, um, you get hit by the curse of success because your little app that was poorly constructed solved a problem. And those five users told all of their coworkers. And, and pretty soon it's used by 50 or 60 users across five offices globally. Mm-hmm. And then you get this panicked call um, from the help desk or from a, a vice president or, you know, something. <laughs> saying, hey, this app is down and it's critical. And you're like, well, I thought it was going to be used for six months as a stopgap for five users. And they tell you, no, 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 we loved it. It's used by 60 people. It's mission critical. Uh, but we need it to work reliably in a global setting. And what do you do? You know, you're, you're toast. On the other hand, if you'd written it with CSLA, um, you could have done the same thing, rolled it out as a two-tier app for five users. And then when this panicked phone call comes in, you can make it sound like it's a big deal. You can maybe get some extra budget dollars, but in reality, it's probably a you know 
two to four hour effort um, where you set up an app server, change a couple configurations, and all of a sudden you're you're robust and fault tolerant in a Google setting. Uh, you're <laughs> Scotty from Star Trek yeah, now. That's right. That's totally the goal. How do I maintain <laughs> my role as a miracle worker? <laughs> you, you found me out. <laughs> well, it's great stuff, and I know it's just been a while since we went over the details of that, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to to explain it. Rocky, it's been great talking to you, as always. Oh, thank you. I always appreciate being on. Keep doing what you do, and we'll talk to you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much, but it means a lot. Just try